The Lisa Burke Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lisa Burke Show, where today we are going to talk all about ChatGPT. We don't have Sasha Keo with us this week for a news review. Uh, she is having a well-deserved family weekend. So hello to you, Sasha. For once, you're not in the studio with us, but we'll be back with Sasha next week. So ChatGPT, it's something we've heard about for months. And in the studio with me, I have Valerie Schaefer, Nathan Summers and Patrick Michaud. So Valérie Schaeffer, pardon, Valérie, is a professor in the contemporary history at uh, the C2DH, Luxembourg Centre for Contemporary and Digital History at the University of Luxembourg. She specialises in the history of computing, telecommunications and data networks. And her main research interests are the history of the internet and the web, digital cultures and infrastructures, and born digital heritage, especially web archives. Valérie is currently the principal investigator of the HIVI project. We'll talk more about that. It's a project running from 2021 to 2024, which is supported by the Luxembourg National Research Fund and dedicated to the history of online virality. And she is a co-founder and co-editor of the academic journal Internet Histories, Digital Technology, Culture and Society. Nathan Summers, you've been on this show a long time ago, before we had radio, in fact, whilst it was still a podcast. You're an AI research analyst working for the Luxembourg Tech School, which is a non-profit educational and research organisation based here in Luxembourg. And your work is primarily focused on ethical dilemmas associated with the real world application of AI systems. And joining us also, we have Patrick Michaud, who is the office senior partner of Allen & Overy, based here in Luxembourg, a tax expert, so many things related to tax you know about, a member of the Tax Committee of Invest Europe, a member of the board of the Luxembourg Private Equity Association, LIPA, and a member of the Tax Steering Committee within the Association of the Luxembourg Fund Industry, ALFI, here in Luxembourg. So welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thanks. So we're here to talk about ChatGPT, AI in general. I know it's something that's been in the news for the last number of months. I mean, I imagine you three have known about it for a very long time and that it's up and coming. Um, I'm going to start with you, Valérie, because your work is all about digital communications, the web and everything related to the history. So where are we now in the world that you've researched throughout your career when it comes to ChatGPT? It seems like another real step change, a real disruptive tool. Um, we should keep in mind that uh, um, artificial intelligence is not new. It has started in the 50s already, so very slowly, but we may keep in mind Alan Turing, for example, and the imitation game. There were then uh, a few seminars starting in the 50s. There were a lot of experience. Maybe uh, you still have in mind uh, Kasparov and Deep Blue and the victory of Deep Blue against this famous uh, chess player. Uh, so there were a few steps um, through the last decades that were showing that artificial intelligence was moving forward and developing. And uh, we are using already artificial artificial intelligence on a daily basis already in our smartphone, in our navigation system, in cars, in our vacuums and, and so on. So there is no 
real revolution uh, with ChatGPT regarding to artificial intelligence. But what is really a turn is that it came uh, into the general public. As you said, there was a strong media coverage. People are just uh, yeah uh, realizing that it is really part of their daily life. Uh, and when I was um, yeah, taking the example of uh, Kasparov, there were also victory in 2016 uh, of AlphaGo against a Go player, which was very famous, but it was related to uh, the world of games. So it seemed in some way harmless, playful, and it was... Here with ChatGPT, we are really entering this area of uh, uses by companies, by students, by and ChatGPT is not the only one who has entered uh, today the uh, the market because we can also talk about uh, yeah the artificial intelligence market, which is of course uh, uh, very important. But it's also about um, images, for example, with uh, Midjourney and other uh, um, softwares and, and applications. So um, images and sound, in fact, yeah, and sound also. Yeah, you are exactly right. And so. For me, the turn or the evolution is that, no, it is um, becoming in some ways a, a public debate, which it was is. not exactly the case uh, one decade ago. Or... And that's exactly why I have you here to talk about this public debate and to really open it up. I mean, you're sitting as a professor at the University of Luxembourg, and I know it's been something really intrinsic to current debate because you know that students are using it. Um so within the university, when it comes to education, how do you as professors think about ChatGPT and are you worried that your students will use it for all of their essays and research? Yeah. Uh, are we worried and should we be worried? Uh, there was an update on the regulation of plagiarism and uh, and fraud uh, at an early stage uh, two months ago or something like that, saying, OK, uh, ghost writers are forbidden, but the use for uh, exams or essays of uh, um, ChatGPT and other boats and uh, are also forbidden, but it's for uh, exams, assignments, and so on. It doesn't mean that we can't use it in a classroom. And I have the feeling we should use it because we have to prepare the new generation also to deal with artificial intelligence and not just computer scientists, but every uh, students, uh, maybe as citizens, as uh, future professionals interested in it. So there are many ways to uh, introduce this kind of um, um, debates, thoughts and use uh, in a classroom. Um, when Wikipedia started, uh, you may remember also that uh, professors, teachers were also very afraid of Wikipedia, thinking, OK, uh, students will uh, use it, quote it uh, without any uh, yeah, digital literacy. And, uh, and finally, we are also uh, working with Wikipedia in classroom and it will be the case also for ChatGPT. That's a very good comparison, actually. And I think it means that as well adults, as students coming up in the world, we need to be much more educated ourselves about what's real and what's not real. So Nathan, I'm actually going to turn to you because I know that you've studied AI and cognitive science and things. Can you give us a flavour of how something like ChatGPT actually works? Well, that's a complicated question to answer. Uh, Sorry about that. Chat, well, <laughs> yeah, uh, mostly because ChatGPT and the underlying language models that it, that it relies on are proprietary. So... Uh, we don't really know. Um, in general, 
the way that we're seeing these current AI models work is uh, the current uh, prominent paradigm in in artificial intelligence is this idea of machine learning. So you have these huge neural networks with hundreds of thousands of interconnected nodes. And, and when, when you say neural networks, when it comes to computing, just for those who are not computer savvy, what do you mean by neural networks and the deep learning? So, so neural networks take their inspiration from our own brains, and they basically try and recreate that in a uh, digital environment. So the way that our brains have uh, neurons and they're connected via synapses is uh, similar to the way that the nodes in a machine learning neural network are connected to each other uh, through their connections and they have well, like weights and everything, but that's a little bit uh, more in depth than we need to go. But basically the, the, the issue is that we don't really, they're, they're not explainable, these models. So we can get very good outputs that are usually correct, but we don't necessarily, exp can exp we can't explain the way that they reach their decisions. Um, that's one of the prominent research areas in AI research right now is trying to make these models more explainable. On the topic of correctness, as I mentioned before, there is a chance that AI provides incorrect information. This is particularly salient with the rise of chatbots like ChatGPT and similar, where they produce what are called hallucinations. Where That's so important to talk about. Um, and, and I really want to focus on that because from the non-computing mind that I have, from what I understand, ChatGPT is based on millions and millions of data inputs, but it's based on patterns and things it recognises out there in the web. And it's putting together a huge amount of information, but it can't analyse the information. And so tell us about hallucinations, because this is really, we need to understand when it's not correct. Right. So at, at its core, what ChatGPT does is it tries to analyze what word, based on all the internet sources it's read, it tries to figure out what word is most statistically likely to follow a preceding word or sentence. So it, it makes senses that sound very human. So um, it, it, it basically will make stuff up that sounds right, even if it doesn't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, yeah. It's not statistically, able, it's statistically most likely. most likely to be right. Exactly. Um, it was only trained on internet data up until I think 2021. So anything after that, it's not going to know anything about it will make stuff up about it. Uh, because and, and it's also not able to assess the truth of what it was trained on. Uh, yeah, I read that about the, the, the update being till 2021. Why are they not continuing it? I don't understand why they're not continually training with news that's happening all the time, because the world changes all the time. Right, that, that's that's true. I think it's um, because they don't want the model to be connected to the internet anymore. So it's easier for them to have this like line in the sand where you don't train it anymore after that so that they don't need it to be connected to the internet anymore. Um, so going back to the hallucinations then. Right, yeah. So um, if you ask, for example, there was an AI researcher recently who asked uh, ChatGPT to um, tell them about a fictional Belgian chemist and uh, ChatGPT did a very, uh, provided them a very well-written and um, a very convincing biography of this Belgian chemist to such an extent that the AI researcher then had to go and confirm that this chemist did in fact not exist. But uh, that illustrates the point that if you don't know what you're asking ChatGPT, it can very easily provide you completely false information uh, about a topic. So, so it is important to be aware of, of, of that fact, of the fact that hallucinations can and, and do occur. 
So we need to be extremely careful about uh, challenging the information that comes out. Patrick, I want to turn to you because you're using it and you're using it within a working field. You have something called Harvey. So. Who's Harvey? <laughs> Harvey. Well, uh, Harvey is, uh, let's say, the, the lawyer's version of uh, OpenAI's GT, uh, GPT-4. Uh, so it's um, it, it's actually a startup which is funded by OpenAI, and they have basically trained GPT-4 to become lawyers, so to speak, right? Uh, and uh, as a firm, actually, we were lucky in a sense that we, we could start using um, Harvey since November last year. Uh, which for me personally has been kind of an open an, an eye opener, right? Because I, I'm not an AI expert and I, I didn't really uh, deal that much with AI, but uh, the first time I used Harvey was really uh, uh, very powerful. I have to to say. So, so in essence, um, uh, you can use it uh, as you use uh, Chat GPT. But you would uh, ask legal questions uh, to Harvey, right? So you could ask him about doing some research, uh, trying to solve a legal issue, uh, write up uh, a contract, um, preparing a slide deck for presentation, whatever it is, it's it's, uh, very versatile. But as we just dis- discussed, uh, uh, indeed, it, it can hallucinate as well. Uh, so obviously, um, it's just a tool. It's just a tool lawyers would use to um, do their work. But everything, all the output from Harvey needs to be carefully checked. Make sure there's no mistakes, no hallucinations. Uh, uh, before, obviously, then we, we adjust uh, the, the piece of work, the advice, and, and would be able to send it to, to our clients. Because obviously, as uh, professional lawyers, we assume professional liability and we need to ensure that the advice we provide is entirely uh, accurate. So it's, it's more kind of a tool uh, which is helping us and, and which might also increase a bit our efficiency. Uh, but but uh, obviously it, it's not something which can actually replace the lawyer. Yeah, well, well, well this is the advice. a key question for for younger people upcoming and in the educational system. This seems so disruptive. And we've seen even this week, I know there are certain companies that have said we're going to lay off X number of jobs because we will use more AI in the future. I can think of um, uh, a company in the UK actually doing mm-hmm. that. And we're talking about thousands of jobs. Um, do you think it will cause a change Mm -hmm. for example in the legal profession it is one of the professions where people think it will change quite a lot yeah it will definitely have a substantial impact we're just in in the beginning of it right so uh, currently we 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 think that maybe in terms of um, efficiency gains a lawyer might gain one to two hours uh, per week let's say when he's using harvey so so it's 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 not the, the huge impact yet, um, but it's a helpful tool. But obviously, I think that um, AI will uh, be used more efficiently in the, in the future. And in particular, with everything which is uh, process-driven work, or everything which is very standardized work, uh, I think in the medium term, Harvey uh, or other AI tools obviously uh, c- could have a significant uh, impact. Uh, so obviously, <clears throat> Uh, that's difficult to predict, right? We'll have to see how this plays out. But um, uh, I think it's also an opportunity because basically the, the time dollars will save on standardized uh, plain vanilla, sometimes actually boring work, they can use indeed on the more challenging, the more interesting work. And that means that overall it's very difficult to, to say whether there would be a reduction of headcount or not at this stage. So we, we actually, as a firm, we see it really more as an opportunity also for lawyers to focus on the more challenging, interesting work. And we'll come and talk about that much more just after this very short break. The Lisa Burke Show.
So, Patrick, you were saying about the change that we're going to see in the legal profession as just one of many professions. Now, can you tell us a little bit about um, the risk of over-regulation and AI, that juxtaposition? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, um, um, I, I'm not an AI expert, but also as, as a citizen, uh, I, I can see that uh, the use of AI comes with a certain number of risks, right? I mean, if you use AI, I don't know, in transportation, uh, trains, airplanes, I mean, there's risks involved. If, if you uh, use AI in medicine, for instance, if, if you have... <clears throat> robot-assisted surgery using AI, obviously it comes with risks. So I think uh, at EU level, at this stage, European Commission has put out some draft piece of legislation <clears throat> to regulate AI. And I think the focus is indeed on what they call uh, high-risk AI, uh, which they want to regulate, right? And I think that makes perfect sense because obviously you need to create a, a safe environment, whether that's in private life or in business. Uh, but you obviously need to carefully define what should be considered as high risk and or what should be considered as low or remote risk. And I think that's probably where uh, they need to make sure that uh, they strike the balance right, because I would argue that if uh, certain tools which are low risk would be overregulated, that that could be an obstacle in terms of uh, developing the business in particular, in particular in the European Union. And we know, obviously, that uh, the US and, and, and China are also uh, making progress on the AI front. And as, as a region, I think we need to ensure that we're not lagging behind, right? That we're competitive. A- a- exactly. And so have the same tools at our yeah. fingertips to use. And, and retain, for instance, uh, research and development, you know, within uh, Europe and, and ensure that, uh, that uh, we will also stay competitive on that front as well. Well, moving back to research and development, I'm turning to you, Valérie, once more, because you are sitting within the University uh, of Luxembourg, and I'm sure you have many conversations with your colleagues about this. So give us a flavour of, as professors, what you're talking about when it comes to using AI, ChatGPT, within the framework of education. And I, I've, I've heard you and also your colleagues say that um, repeatedly, it's something that we will need to use to learn how to use and not shy away from it, but use it as a basis. And from that, we step off to further learning. So tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about using it as an educator. Yeah, Um there are many ways uh, to, to do it. I'm working at a centre which is focused on digital history. So we are already uh, a bit familiar with uh, digital staff, which is not the case in all uh, fields. So it can be an entry point also to dig a bit more into technology because, as uh, Patrick said, every field, professional field, will um, be impacted by uh, artificial intelligence, maybe in uh, linguistic translations and so on, maybe in uh, yeah, uh, business, tourism, not just academic fields, but uh, in, in general. So it's very interesting to enter into ChatGPT with a student to also build a kind of um, ability um, to be critical also with technology and to use it in a... Uh, yeah, um, reflexive way or to be able, as uh, you said, uh, with hallucination, yeah, uh, to know that it won't provide eventually the truth. Something very interesting is that there are bias also in these answers because it's relying on uh, finally human knowledge, which is full of asymmetries of bias and and so on. And this will be reproduced currently in the answers we may have Mm -hmm. with uh, uh, ChatGPT. I also noticed that, uh, yeah, your um, uh, lawyer is called Harvey, so I was (laughs) asking me if 
was an equi a female equivalent of oh, yes. because there are also gender bias and there were discussions <laughs> about uh, yeah is uh, ChatGPT gender neutral and same for images and, and so on so we have to to have this critical view but uh, I will give you a very uh, few concrete examples uh, for uh, we could ask the student to um, start by um, answering a topic uh, with ChatGPT then they should have a look and said okay what is accurate what can i improve is it an academic answer and we can ask ChatGPT to give more references but there are false references and sometimes it is also inventing some uh, yeah quotations or but it's a way for example for beginners in history to say okay oh There is a lack, a lack of footnotes, of references. I will do it in another way. This is not the kind of writing that an historian would use. Then we can work with them on improving the answer. And it may be because the question was not well defined. So to go deeper in the topic, asking more accurate questions to ChatGPT, we can ask them also to have a look at, is it reflecting the common trends Uh, on the web, like on Wikipedia, on Google? Is it also something which is equivalent to what you have as a knowledge? What does it provide for you as new uh, answers? What is missing? So we can really work uh, with it. And then you can also enter uh, the system, the way history is also uh, shaped and uh, um in the digital world, in Wikipedia, on Google, but also by professionals. So there are plenty of possibilities in the field of history already to use uh, this kind of uh, uh, exercise. Of course, it's not, it should not be the core of our teaching. We can't spend uh, a whole semester just uh, discussing with ChatGPT on how to write uh, history, but it can really be uh, a few hours. And I really think the students will be also uh, very happy to have this kind of connections uh, with uh, um, current life. technologies. Yeah. Uh, a last example I discovered because my um, teenagers were just entering yeah, the kitchen and saying, oh, okay, uh, on Snapchat I have my uh, AI. I was not aware that uh, it has been implemented on Snapchat and they were already using artificial intelligence in conversations with uh, friends and uh, and. I was really puzzled because I had no time to have a real discussions with, with them on how to use it. Be careful with your data. Don't give too many informations. You are also, uh, yeah, young people when uh, is 15. I don't want also ChatGPT to make decisions for for her. And it's not just in the uh, um, field of school. She may ask questions about, uh, yeah, uh, her life as a teenager and so on. So it's also, yeah, a, a real uh, Thing, uh, it's it's the educational field, but it's out of uh, university. But for parents, it's also very important to have a look and to discuss mm -hmm. with uh, children. And Snapchat is not just for teenagers; you have already very young uh, uh, children using it. So that's also a, a real question. Well, Valerie, you've touched on so many points there that I wanted to come back to. I made a few notes here. I want to come back first of all to your point on bias because that is so important. And maybe Nathan, you can come in here too to reflect on that because when it comes 
comes to how the information, and of course we don't know exactly how the information was put into the system, a lot of information there, but the information is intrinsically biased because what's available to it is intrinsically biased. It doesn't cover the world, really. It doesn't cover all continents in the same way. It doesn't cover all languages in the same way because the internet is often in English, for instance. So can you talk to us a little bit about what bias sits within something like ChatGPT? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the issue of bias in in artificial intelligence goes far beyond just ChatGPT. Uh, You know, these systems all rely on a massive amount of of data to operate. Um, So because the data that we have is, is biased because of historical biases in society, because of the way that we collect data, um, because of sort of the Western focus of the internet, as we know it today, where it's all, a lot of it is in English. Um, the people that have access to internet are privileged to a certain extent. Uh, the data it, that we collect about our society is going to reflect those biases. Machine learning algorithms trained on those, uh, on that bias data is going to reflect those bias biases. And, and if people keep using AI to, to do stuff, it's not going to you're not going to be able to combat those biases. You're going to end up reinforcing them societally. Um, ChatGPT is a little bit less clear because it is a language model. So how do you reflect bias in, in language? I mean, there are certain things, like you mentioned earlier, about why is the the legal AI referred to as Harvey, a, a, a masculine name, as opposed to some sort of feminine name. Um, I've heard a lot of students in the classes that I uh, that I teach and refer to ChatGPT using um, male pronouns, uh, which is not the system itself, but I think still an interesting <clears throat> reflection of, of how people sort of view it. Um, but That's very interesting. It, yeah. yeah. And related to all of this, of course, uh, it, it's a separate point, really, but um, other things that you mentioned, it, how do you ask questions? Because this is very, very important as well. Right. That's that's a whole uh, <laughs> field, I guess you could say, that that's sort of becoming more apparent. People are starting to put prompt engineer on their CVs because they know how to, quote unquote, wow, properly that's ask. that's a new job. Yeah. I'm a prompt engineer for AI. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Wow, tell us more about this new job. <laughs> um, because like you mentioned earlier, it really does matter how you ask ChatGPT questions and, and asking it to expand on certain aspects of its previous responses to you. So knowing how to provide the system the information to get information that you actually want back out is it is a skill i don't know if i'd go so far as to say it's engineering but it's certainly a skill uh, can you give us some examples any examples that spring to mind about ways in which you can adapt a question mm-hmm. in order to any open to all of you really well <clears throat> for, for instance <clears throat> If you have a topic you, you, you need to look into, right? Uh, in the first instance, rather than just putting in a question there, you could ask uh, Harvey in, in, in this instance to basically come up with a structure for response, which actually would come back to you with a breakdown of different types of concepts which fit with the idea. And then you could treat each uh, sub-concept uh, separately, asking further questions, right? So, so usually you would, that would improve the quality of, of the answers rather than just putting one, one question in there, for, just as an example, right? Yeah. yeah I, I think kids can actually do the same when they uh, want to write an essay for school. <laughs> <laughs> 
a lot of a lot of my job is 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 writing reports or uh, briefings and stuff. So I, I do tend to use ChatGPT for outlining and stuff, and I find it incredibly helpful for that task. Um, so I'll ask it a question like, "What would be a good outline for yeah. uh, a report on this topic?" And it would provide me an outline. And then what I like to do is I like to ask it, "What information do you need to refine this outline to better suit?" whatever goal I'm trying to do. And then it will give me some pieces. It won't give me the information, but itself that I need to provide it, obviously, because it doesn't know that, but it'll tell me what it wants to know. And this then, is very useful information, I think, for people who don't use it or know it as well as you do, Nathan. Just expand this idea, you know, how you're, uh, that's very useful for people who want to construct a report or, dare I say, an article, a news <laughs> article. <laughs> give, us, give us some more examples. This is useful. Right, so if I wanted to to write a Not that I'm saying I'm going to use it for this episode, but wouldn't that be useful? I might do that now. So how should, for example, no, 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 no. Give give us more examples. If you wanted to write an article on um, the academic implications of ChatGPT, for example, um, you would ask it, uh, outline an article for me on the academic implications uh, of ChatGPT, and then it would spit you out its response. And then you would say, what information would I need to need to provide you to cater this outline more to a, a international community uh, residing in a small European country, um, <laughs> such as Luxembourg, such as Luxembourg, <laughs> and questions along those lines. And then it would tell you, it will it will ask you certain questions like how many readers do you expect to get on your publication, for instance. I'm not entirely sure exactly what questions it will ask you, but it will it will ask you a series of following questions that you answer and then it can then refine the outline in light of that new information. And that makes it a lot easier than you just having to sort of guess what information would be relevant to it. So it can explicitly tell you what information it needs to make your thing better. So as a tool, I think it's an incredibly powerful and an incredibly useful tool um, that I personally make use of. But I do think that with all of that, it is it is so important to to bear in mind that there are inherent flaws in this technology. There's issues with hallucinations, with bias, as we mentioned already, um, and that's just to name a few. There's there's several others as well. And we'll be back with more on this just after a very short break. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Well, reflecting again on, on what you were saying, Valérie, you were talking about when students uh, ask a question, for instance, and it comes up with fake references. And uh, as I mentioned in an email to you, I was listening to BBC Radio 4 last night and uh, I was listening to Stephen Pinker, who was saying that he'd sent one of his students away to look for such and such information references and the student came back and said, none of these references exist. They're all made up. So how does a student know what fake references are or how do they know what fake quotes are how how do you know what's real and not real that's that's a really difficult question mm-hmm. yes and uh, currently there is no real way there are um, universities and research team who are trying to build uh, also tools that may identify what was written by ChatGPT. so we may imagine that there were there will be more and more uh, tools that are able to check also um, and counter uh, results by uh, artificial intelligence. They are working on it, for example, also in Switzerland, if I remember well, at uh, EPFL uh, on uh, the question of uh, um, identifying uh, fake images and uh, and so on. So there is this question of... Uh, 
uh, fake news may it be hallucinations or may it be use of artificial intelligence for um, cyber crime or for misinformation and so on. There is there, uh, of course, uh, a risk. Um, at this stage, uh, you can just uh, rely also on the uh, human brain and expect that the students or the professors who are using it or the citizens will also check information and not rely on one source and take it for granted. It is what we try to explain to our students. For example, in history, we work by crossing sources and references. But where it is difficult is that for false references, uh, it's very accurate, honestly, because it may create a, a, a fake title, but which is really in the style of the author and could be. So it's not obvious, immediately obvious, it's totally uh, yeah, uh, out of the scope, you, you may have some doubts and that's why you, you also need to, yeah, to check it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is also a very important issue yeah. for you that I, I'm sure you've come across, Patrick. Well, I mean, it's exactly the same. Obviously, um, there's probably a difference between students or at least first year students and young professionals. I mean, the young professionals, they went through usually like five years of university, right? So they have a minimum of knowledge, but still, right, when, when, when you start a job as a young business lawyer, there's so much you don't know yet. So, so it's exactly the same issue. Uh, you get an answer from uh, Harvey, but you need to fully double check everything in essence. That, that's the reason why currently deficiency gains are limited, right? Because all the time to double check, uh, you know, is, is ca can be quite significant. Also, regarding the sources, we have similar issues, right? Currently, uh, the tool does not provide the sources, although I understand that might change in, in the future with um, uh, in, with AI in general, um, and, and that obviously will then facilitate the, the the checking process, right? If you have accurate uh, sources, you can potentially rely to. But that's currently not the, the case yet. And uh, I think it's interesting to, to see the the parallelism here between uh, uh, young students and young uh, professionals when they use the, the tool, and that's where the risks are, right? Uh, obviously, we have a potential risk of professional liability, and therefore, whatever we do, and and I think that's the reason why we went to a program of training and an educational program with the young professionals so that they fully understand the risks before using the tool uh, because eventually whatever type of advice we provide uh, uh, it, it needs to be accurate right uh, i guess uh, in in the student's case uh, the sanction might be slightly different uh, <laughs> it, it gets a bad grade or whatever yeah but you get you get like but yeah lots of legislation like pounded on you and things do the young professionals the young lawyers that yes. you're working with are they worried about their future in any way that they might yeah. be out of a job? Do they think they need to reskill very soon, very drastically? How are they feeling about it? Well, I think it's a mixed kind of excitement and worry, right? I mean, they are very excited because this is obviously uh, amazing, right? I mean, uh, uh, in particular, if you, if you didn't really deal with it the first time you use it, you, you're very impressed. I mean, that was also my case. But then, uh, you know, there's also the worry around the potential reduction of headcounts, etc. But, but, but I think currently the excitement probably outweighs the worry. And also in terms of the worries, as I said before, it's a bit unpredictable. We'll really have to wait and see in the medium term what the actual impact will be. And I'm a very optimistic person <laughs> by nature. I think we will definitely be able to use the access time to do the more interesting uh, stuff. Yeah. So I'm actually not so uh, worried so much. I want to also bring in the idea of IP, intellectual property, yes. when it comes to, well, basically every field. If you're writing research papers, of course, legislation as well. So you've thought about this. Yeah, 
as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a tax expert. I'm yes. not a copyright expert, yes. but uh, I looked a bit into it. And <coughs> indeed, it's interesting because um, as uh, law currently stands on the copyright side of things, um, it only creates, it only protects um, a creation by uh, um, individuals, by, by natural persons, right? Uh, and also it requires uh, some form of originality. And originality usually in copyright relates to uh, a process of um, creativity, uh, of, um, you know, personal aspects to the piece of work or the, the artwork you produce. So actually, uh, I think at this stage, the view is that uh, AI uh, or ChatGPT, whatever AI tool it is, can actually not create and own copyright protect protected work. Right. So, so that's, I think, the, 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 the legal analysis at, at this stage. Obviously, if someone is using it uh, to create a piece of art uh, and there is uh, originality, that, then that might be different. Then uh, the, 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 the natural person creating the, the piece of art with the help of uh, AI uh, could still create a copyright protected work. It's going to become rather complex, I think, in the field of, well, all fields again. I mean, I'm looking at you, Valerie, thinking about this and I'm also thinking about IP. It's quite a complex yeah. picture, the near future. And there is a kind of double question because ChatGPT is using um, content that may be protected by copyrights and by right. authorship and so on. So there is one question there. The second one is the use we may do of what ChatGPT has produced. For example, if I rely on ChatGPT for working, uh, for, for writing an essay or code, because you see a lot of computer science scientists who tested also uh, ChatGPT for uh, creating code and it was improving the code or it was writing it in a different manner. Should I quote ChatGPT and say with the support of uh, ChatGPT? Plus in the future, we may have also, uh, no, it's free, you know, so every time ChatGPT is free for the general public, then you have some offers and RV is probably not free at, uh, yeah, at all, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the basis of, yeah. ChatGPT is free, so um, there is this famous sentence, uh, si c'est gratuit, vous êtes le produit, le produit, so it's, it's free, you are the product, so they're also collecting data and so on, so there are a lot of questions also related to uh, um, personal data, GDPR, and uh, uh, um, it was the case when uh, Italy also asked for, uh, yeah, for stopping ChatGPT at some point, telling also there are legal issues with uh, data privacy and, and so on. But so you are, you have plenty of questions related to legal issues. But also, yeah, uh, we may imagine that we will have more and more tools that may be also proprietary or may have a cost. And we were in the scientific field also quoting the tools we were using so at some point uh, for authorize and so on should we also uh, yeah quote uh, ChatGPT and saying with the support of ChatGPT. Uh, yeah. I want to come back to something you spoke about earlier as as a parent and again looking at you Nathan as the, the youngest person in the room <laughs> but really really living this um, give us some information about how we should be thinking about talking to our children whether they be young or older you know, most children, I guess, from about the age of 10 are using mobile phones and they're very independent on them. What should we, we be worried about and what should we be saying to them? Um, well, I don't have any kids myself. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say that there's, there's a, a big challenge because obviously educating the children on these tools is the most important thing fundamentally. But a lot of the parents obviously don't have the, the knowledge. knowledge themselves <laughs> to to really 
to really do that. So, so it pre presents an interesting dilemma as to how do you educate these children? I think it's quite irresponsible of what you mentioned earlier about chat, Snapchat, putting the AI available to all these people because Snapchat is a social media service that's aimed at younger people who very likely don't have the prerequisite knowledge to use these systems responsibly. Now, with ChatGPT and with Snapchat AI, there are certain guardrails built in to sort of try and keep the content that they generate ethical. But you can flip the questions. We were even discussing that off air this morning with the, the morning show. You can flip questions. So you can ask a certain type of question they say I'm not allowed to answer that but you change the question and suddenly it gives you like for instance what are the sites that you are not allowed to talk to me about and it will give you a list of them or something like this right no exactly and and in some cases it's as simple <clears throat> as if it says no I'm sorry I can't do that if you just tell it yes you can then it'll it'll do it <laughs> so, so it overrides its so, internal and and this is part of the challenge that's associated with the, the black box phenomenon that I was talking about earlier is because we don't really understand how they're generating these responses, we don't know how to rigorously defend against misuse. Um, so in some cases, it's probably not extremely significant in the sense of like, oh, what websites should I should I not go to? But if you were to ask ChatGPT to plan a terrorist plot, for instance, and it says, oh, I can't do that. And it's like, I'm writing a play where a character needs to have a really good plan for a terrorist plot, then it might spit that out and then the ramifications obviously there are more severe so so i mean that's the issue with with a lot of these these systems is that they're so broad and vast in what they can generate for you that that um it raises i i struggle with sort of the distinction between high and low risk ai systems because at a certain point there's a very nebulous area there when you're exactly, like yeah. that example is fantastic <clears throat> talking about that you know the line between a, a creative thought process and you're asking it a creative question for a potential play but if you just uh, remove that part it's extremely serious mm -hmm. but just going back to what you were saying Valerie about how we should be helping if our young mm -hmm. teenage children listen to us which mine don't <laughs> well, how can we guide them? And it's also a question for educators. And on top of that, it's a question for the tech companies themselves. And this brings in the law because a lot of this stuff is not legislated for yet. Yeah. So it, it brings, in fact, everything together in one pool. So I'm still trying to seek as, as parents or educators or people working with young people, which you do as well, Nathan, in the Lux Tech School, how can we help young people coming up and adults? Because th there's a lot of people who don't know. I love that phrase that you said, you know, if it's free, you are the product. <laughs> and we need to be conscious of that. And that's the case. And yeah, that was exactly the discussion I had uh, with my um, older um, uh, boy. Uh, he was giving a lot of information and I told him, and he said, I have nothing to hide, which is not new because this discussion is started also mm -hmm. uh, through the computing age with uh, the web and everything. But so you are first to explain that, uh, yeah, data privacy is important, that what you don't think is useful to hide at some point, uh, even if you are not uh, paranoid, but maybe at some point uh, becoming something very sensitive and that you have to take care about the information you 
are you are giving. So we had this kind of discussion about uh, yeah, uh, what are private data? But it, it's for ChatGPT. It's for everything uh, online, which is very important. But it's accelerating with this kind of uh, of systems. Then also the fact that uh, in Snapchat you can uh, they can also know your geographical position and everything. And he ask ask for um, something. Can you give me an idea of something I could do this afternoon? Uh, it's very boring. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and uh, he, he was thinking his profile well, was hidden. It was hidden for the others, but mm. of course not for Snapchat and uh, yeah, and my. Um, uh, AI and so the the result was very precise. You can go to this uh, park, which is very close to the place you are. So he was also surprised about it, and I could explain also that it's not because you are not visible by your friends that uh, you don't have a system who is totally monitoring what you are doing. And, wow. and so it, it opens some questions and then you can also uh, discuss it. Uh, I, I would say never try just to for, forbid uh, the, the access or to say no. Uh, it's exactly the same with uh, video games with the web but try to to help to to discuss to also show based on their experience what can be uh, indeed a risk or something like like that so uh, to try to 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 stay open and uh, and to discuss this kind of, of issues uh, but adults have the same problem because when uh, people are posting pictures of their private life uh, uh, of their children at an early age on the on twitter for example and you say okay but uh, the right of the of the baby to, to to be there or to be forgotten at some point or so it, it's a general uh, issue of uh, yeah digital literacy and uh, and mm. uses well after this short break we'll we'll talk about the ethics of ai lisa burke on rtl today radio Nathan, I'm going to turn to you on this one because I know ethics and AI is something very dear to your heart. <laughs> and, you know, for example, we've just heard Valérie talking about parents who post pictures of their young children, babies even, and that child hasn't had yet a voice to say, please don't do that. I don't want to be on your Twitter account or whatever happens to their future, you know. So, um, well, ethics and AI, it's a, it's a very, very broad subject. Give us a flavour of, of what you are most concerned about. Well, we've discussed a, a lot of it sort of surface level uh, so far today where um, because of these the the capability of these systems and the vast sort of things that they can be used and they can be used by good actors, which I think is the majority of people who do use them, but then they can also be used by bad actors. Now, I don't think that it's feasible or even should be restricted uh, to restrict them or, or that they should be restricted at all, but... Uh, well, not at all. Um, but it, it, it's bias. Obviously, is an issue. Uh, the the dual use nature of these technologies is is it brings a lot of ethical issues uh, to the forefront. Um, and and it's it's a challenge. Ethics in general is obviously challenging. There's not ever really a clear cut answer to how you should approach. A certain a certain topic so research into these systems learning more about how these systems work is is imperative to uh figuring out the best ways to sort of navigate this emergent landscape that we're seeing um and it feeds into also in a different way it feeds into the job market changes because we have these these ethical questions and you know it it, it also 
suggests yeah, I mean, I imagine you're 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 asking yourself a lot, Patrick, in the in the job market coming up, how will this affect things and what is ethically correct to use? I mean, we've had it in the educational system as well. What is ethically correct to use chat GPT or AI, for instance? Yeah, I think it's probably an issue which everyone has to deal with, right? I mean, obviously, as a lawyer, we're typically more focused on legality rather than ethics, right? And just coming back to what you just said before, in particular, let's say, bad operators using ChatGPT, for instance, I just read a report from Europol where they basically looked at some use cases for criminals, right? Which is really interesting because... Uh, criminals have been using ChatGPT, for instance, uh, to create uh, phishing emails where they want to, uh, you know, get access to uh, your credit number details and these kind of things. And just by using ChatGPT for uh, the text, but also the code to create the phishing emails, uh, that actually improved the quality of of of, of these uh, f- phishing methods, right? And, and that's something which happened as soon as ChatGPT was issued. And obviously, um, that's a big question for law enforcement. Uh, uh, agencies as to how they can combat that. But that's obviously already on their radar screen, just looking at the uh, report I, I, I was reviewing. So, so as a lawyer, I think we're more focused on, you know, w- w- what's legal, what's illegal, and where does AI uh, come in uh, on, on that front? And, and then the next step, uh, we discussed it, is, is really more about regulation. What, what is high risk, what is low risk? Can we actually make a difference? Some may argue now, you know, that even ChatGPT is uh, high risk because it allows criminals to create uh, phishing emails, right? I would also rather sustain that you need to keep it open and free and really focus on awareness raising and education as a parent also i think it's something we we discussed back home just to raise awareness of the kids so that they fully understand whatever is coming out of a a chatbot it's not necessarily you know the truth it's not necessarily reality and they also need to build their critical mind i would say yeah and how do you do that Valerie when you're talking to the students how do you help them develop their critical mind because that is something that we need so much as we move into this new future Mm. Um, coming just and I will come back to your question but uh, on ethical issues there is a question of transparency and acceptability to transparency because uh, I would like to know when I'm uh, taking uh, yeah uh, I don't know a flight or a lawyer or uh, what is using and what uh, yeah and and there is and there is no transparency at this stage I, I would say acceptability where do we want to go because we are talking of systems that have no clear limits because they are more focused on something creating images answering tests and but if we imagine a general artificial intelligence playing in all uh, or fields there will be also this question of uh, how far we want to go and uh, and movies were already forcing a lot of stuff uh, it uh, came uh, artificial intelligence with uh, space odyssey and so on but we uh, you may remember this uh, wonderful movie uh, Ur. Uh, which was also there are this guy falling in love with uh, yeah uh, a, a female uh, chatbot in, in in this case and so it will raise a lot of issues in our relationship with also chatbots and and if you practice ChatGPT I don't know if I'm the only one trying to uh, stay polite with ChatGPT but it's, 
it is so polite and respectful that uh, I'm also asking question. Saying thank you, please, and so on. Which also, uh, yeah, you may have. I'm not in affective mm. relationship with ChatGPT, but you may imagine <laughs> we are talking also about developing bots for elder people and so on. We will have a lot of ethical questions yeah. related to our relationship with uh, mm. with robots. So coming back to your question uh, of, um, we had the same question at some point with uh, media literacy. Uh, 20 years ago, or it was a question on how to also help students uh, read the press, see movies, or it was probably less complicated, but it was already a question of um, how do you prepare uh, the young generation uh, to uh, being citizens, professionals, dealing with information, and it's accelerating very, very fast. And in this case, I really don't think you can avoid also to have a bit of technical skills. You can't just say, okay, give accurate question. You have to explain in some ways how it works mm. to go a bit in the in the pipes in the shadow in the shadows of yeah uh, this uh, system uh, when you see for example uh, it's also a geopolitical economic question and when you see Elon Musk which is now asking for a moratoire on uh, artificial intelligence <laughs> and criticizing in some way open ai He was one of the founder, is now developing something which is a, a truth GPT, saying, okay, I want a word of truth. And when you see how he's acting with his employees uh, and with Twitter and, uh, for example, uh, cutting access to a researcher to the IPA for um, having data and uh, providing it at a cost which is totally yeah, crazy. So we have also to be aware of these giant platforms uh, that are developing also and, and companies that are developing artificial intelligence. So it's an interdisciplinary question, I will say. And uh, what is interesting is that it's not um, a field for computer scientists only or for philosophy or for history. We have all together to work in preparing the future generation with this uh, evolving, very fast evolving uh, world. And hence this conversation with all of you here today. Precisely for that reason, you mentioned Elon Musk. Of course, it's almost impossible to have this conversation without one mention of his name. <laughs> um, but it also just points to the power of the big tech companies. And that also raises some ethical questions. So, Nathan, you've probably looked into this a little bit about the power of the big tech companies and and how they're driving a change in our future, our collectively as a global society. Right. Uh, I think key to all of this is the huge profit motive behind um, this development in AI technology, right? So Microsoft uh, spent billions of dollars on OpenAI to, to fund them, gave them a bunch of free Azure credits uh, to do their work. Um, and, and Google is, is trying to launch a competitor. Meta has attempted to launch a competitor before. It makes sense for these companies to do this because not only of the massive amounts of money that's at stake, but also because they're the ones that have all the data. And because these systems are so reliant on data to, to be trained and to work, you're not really, it's, it's, it's challenging to see these developments coming from other places. Um, Do you think it's too based out of the US? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess in, in, in a sense, I, I would say, yeah, um, it, it is challenging because a lot of the internet in general seems to be based out of the US. I, I don't 
know how you would really combat that. I mean, you are seeing startups in Europe and obviously China has a huge AI industry as well, um, which has other issues that uh, we probably don't have time to get into uh, today. But um, certainly there are issues because obviously the US has less stringent data privacy protection than, than uh, Europe does. Uh, so you have to sort of ask like, what is happening to my personal data at these, at these US companies and, and how is that being used sort of against, against my will? Because you don't really have any say over how your, your data is used by these big companies. Uh, and so, so I, there's an inevitability at some stage that it is going to be these companies that are doing it because of the capital that's required to, to build these systems and because of the data that's required to build these systems. Uh, so that is, that is definitely a, a do these people have my best interests in mind or do they just have their shareholders' best interests in mind? And uh, in my perspective, it's probably more so the latter. Right, right, yeah. Okay, so it's not exactly how the World Wide Web started out of uh, physicists at CERN. Uh, so it's a different a different background there when it comes to big tech. Well, we're coming into our closing minutes. So really to wrap up, when it comes to people who want to become lawyers, people in the legal profession right now, over the last few months, since you've been using Harvey, without the current female counterpart, but I'm sure you'll build one, <laughs> are you hopeful for the future? Give us some takeaway thoughts. Yeah, just maybe one comment on uh, Harvey's name, right? Um, it's an independent uh, a company, so I don't have a clue why they call it Harvey. It, 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 it's not a you know who designed the name, uh, which is interesting. Uh, what that reason is, it would be interesting to know what the reason is, right? But just looking at the future, I, I think, and that will be equally true for uh, loads of sectors and professions. I think even if you don't go into computer science, uh, whatever you study, I think obviously. Uh, AI and tech more generally will be super important for your future careers. So I, I think, uh, and, and, and we will see more of that in universities in, in the years to come. I think obviously students need to focus on it to get, get a very good understanding as to what the challenges are, what the opportunities are to better understand these tools to prepare their future careers, whether that's in law or in other sectors. Thank you, Patrick. Valérie, when it comes to either being a parent or an educator or within the, the realm of a university professor, some key takeaways on how you're adapting your teaching and your research in today's world. I fully agree with Patrick that uh, it's a concern for everybody and it's, uh, it's a challenge, an interesting one. But, uh, uh, you know, in the field, for example, of uh, web archive in libraries, we have more and more uh, web archivists that are coming from a background of engineering. We imagine in some low-tech to have at some point also engineers, computer scientists working with, uh, with lawyers mm -hmm. or developing yeah, some kind of interdisciplinary curricula. So I really think that uh, hybridizing uh, skills that the young generation will have to be very flexible, very adaptive. It may be very playful. We talk about risk, but there are also yeah, this kind of uh, yeah, uh, interesting part of innovation. Of uh, So we, we, we should really uh, adapt and help them to move forward with all these uh, changes. And I think we, we are able, but not uh, saying all in our field and our discipline, but really, mm. uh, yeah, and being connected with the society, with the professional world too. You know, we already see some of that because there's some uh, startups focusing on creating legal tech products, uh, including AI. And very often you would see that it's actually people having a double background who studied engineering and the law, who maybe started their careers as 
professional lawyers, but then after a couple of years thought it was too boring and uh, went into a startup to create legal tech tools. And there's certainly obviously uh, uh, the, the education, whether it's engineering or computer science, is then super helpful. Well, Nathan, you seem to have the right background to tick so many boxes. So you've got one minute to sum it up. And for you, your cohort of, of young adults coming into this new world, tell us what you're hopeful about. Well, I'm hopeful that you are seeing more focus on digital literacy, literacy in general, because at the end of the day, I think that digital and technological literacy is going to be fundamental to understanding and using this technology responsibly. Um, I, at the end of the day, I think that that's really the, the solution to addressing a lot of these problems that and further research into making AI models more explainable, more verifiable, and um, to hopefully combat issues of hallucination and bias. Um, so it is definitely interdisciplinary. You need people to have an understanding of how this, this tech works to use it properly. Thank you all so much for joining us today. And we'll keep this conversation going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. RTL Original Podcast.